to the Detroit Joe podcast. Allow me to date myself today on a subject I know very little about. Well, really, it's the legal side of this subject. You can call it cannabis if you like, but it's all weed, pot, reefer, and grass to me. A few years back, we voted to make recreation weed legal. I think that's what it was. It only mattered to me due to me knowing what would happen next. Allow me to explain myself. I have lots of history with the numbers racket. And I watched the state of Michigan's lottery put many good people out of business claiming the lottery money would go to our schools. Not true. The numbers business made a way for many people in our black community, meaning people used this business to move into the middle class. They bought homes and businesses, which employed many people. It was not a violent business, but a business where even the church woman would sometimes partake. So when I heard the weed business would become legal, I thought, here we go again. The state has taken a street business away from the common man, giving permits to who they want. The state could and would slowly make the money. It was the lottery all over again. I decided to not vote for the recreation use of weed. People can just keep selling it underground. My friends were not having this. They talked and talked to me until I changed my mind. There were two reasons that caused me to change my vote. I realized that many people might really need to use weed for medicinal use, but not qualify for the card. I also thought somehow the weed boys and girls would be released from jail slash prison. I was also so silly to believe that black folks that live in this city would have an opportunity to make some real money by ownership. Wrong. It was the old one, two, three, like the lottery. Only some people would be allowed to sell weed. And from where I stand, most are not black. So I have heard so much about this cannabis business that I can honestly say I don't understand what is truly going on in this city. Like I said, it's all weed to me. Today I have a councilman here to explain this business to me and others. Detroit Joe welcomes Councilman Coleman A. Young Jr. Hey, how you doing, Ms. King? <laughs> hey, all right, Detroit Joe? Absolutely. Good deal, good deal, good deal. Now, I really need for you to explain this cannabis business to me from the very start to where we are now. And how did we get there? 
Well, uh, first and foremost, thank you again for having me. Always a pleasure to be with you. Um, how we got here, basically, first of all, was by state legislation. So we are the first state in the Midwest to legalize cannabis. Uh, we are taking uh, our lead from Colorado, uh, as well as California, that legalized cannabis in those states. And the reason why we did this was because black people represent about 13% of the population. They are about 33% of the prison population. Uh, black men, 18 to 35, that is. And most of that is due to low-level drug offenses. And I just thought that this was very reminiscent of post-Civil War, post-slavery, with not just the Black Codes, but also with convict leasing. When they locked up Black people for low-level offenses or no offenses at all, and they criminalized a lot of uh, small, trivial things in order to lock up Black people and to lease out their labor to rebuild the South and to work the plantations, the mines, and the mills. Because after Civil War, Black people made up about 80% of the trade workers at that time, people who worked in the trades, the machinists, well not machines, but um, the millwrights, carpenters, things of that nature. So this was basically slavery all over again, or they called it slavery by another name. And there's some instances where Black people actually said it was worse than slavery. You have stories of black people who working themselves to death in the mines and dying. Uh, you have issues about black people who, because they complained, you know, during sharecropping, where basically they had to go into debt to be able to get the tools that they needed so they could have a piece of the crop that they picked for themselves. This was something that I thought was basically this system all over again. And I felt that this was wrong. And so that's why I thought we need to legalize marijuana. Now, in Michigan, it's different than Colorado. And Colorado was state down. In Detroit, in Michigan, it allows the local municipalities to be able to determine whether or not they want marijuana in their municipalities, their cities, their villages, their townships or not mm -hmm. by vote. Okay. This city voted, I think, 65% with Proposal M to be able to authorize that here. We've been very slow in the process of being able to actually authorize it because we have not passed legislation. We've passed legislation, but it's faced lawsuits. So the first time we passed legislation, it was Detroit Legacy, where 51% of all the marijuana licenses would go to Detroiters, right? Will be reserved for Detroiters. There were also some other provisions in that that people didn't like, such as the fact that they wanted to if you've been a marijuana business, you couldn't get into the business for five years if you're established here currently because they felt they would be unfair to black folks who are trying to get into the business. Secondly, you could only have one store and they wanted to also make sure that you could sell medical marijuana and marijuana from the same place. And the one store is called the franchise rule. And so basically, these are things that the marijuana industry was opposed to. They filed a lawsuit the first time. They were successful on appeal with their lawsuit the first time. I support 51% Detroit licenses. I feel some of the other stuff is not good for business. We passed the ordinance. And let me say this. We passed it in 2016 
I think it took us till 2000. Um, I don't know if it's 2020. I forgot what date it was. But when we passed it the first time. It took us a couple years just to get this ordinance together. We passed it the first time. It got shot down by the courts. We passed another ordinance. Now it's going through the courts again because they changed it to where it was required 51 Detroit licenses. Now it is a status. So if you have you know, so many black Detroiters working for you at your store, if you have you know, ownership, a black Detroit has 51% ownership, you would qualify for Detroit establishment. You get more points for your equity license. Mm-hmm. There was also another issue of zoning. You know, where are you going to put them at? So there was a lot of concern that churches had that they were throughout the neighborhood, they were prevalent, and they were ignoring the laws, which is basically you had to be a thousand feet from a school, a church, a park, a liquor store, or another cannabis store. I understand schools because that's federal law. Mm-hmm. I understand parks as well. The thing that stood out to me was the liquor stores and the other cannabis stores. Now, we do have some cannabis stores that are together because of variances in zoning that people got. That's why you might go outside, you see two cannabis stores that are next to each other in Detroit. That's why, because they got variances in the zoning to be able to board zoning appeals to be able to do that. But to wrap this up, for me, the reason why I supported this is because you had people whose lives were destroyed based on war drugs. They couldn't get jobs. They couldn't get life insurance. They couldn't go to school because you can't get college loans. You had a felony on your record. You can't live certain places with a felony on your record. They were basically wearing this scarlet letter for a low-level drug offense. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, you have people who were snorting cocaine, but that's considered a Wall Street drug. Yeah, that's considered a high party drug. And if you got caught with that, you would have to. There was a hundred to one rule with crack cocaine. It's a little bit different with crack cocaine, where if you had to get caught with a hundred vials of cocaine to equal the same sentence, you would get caught with one vial of crack. I thought that was inherently discriminatory. I thought the fact that marijuana, a drug which no one has died from ever since its existence, that they found it on the Eurasia steep. Um, that Queen Victoria used for her menstrual cramps. I mean, you can go back to Shang Nung in 27, 27 BC, the divine farmer using it, you know, for medical benefits and things of that nature. I just felt like it was wrong. It was discriminatory. And it was less about the war on drugs and the more about the war on black and brown people. And that's why I thought we need to legalize marijuana. That's why I supported it. Well, who controls the business now? I have seen several of the businesses, one in our neighborhood with my silly self. I thought it was a uh, restaurant. So I drove up. I was going to get me a carry out. And then I kind of looked. I said, "Ah, this may not be a restaurant. So I took out my phone and I Googled it and found out it was a cannabis store. Yeah. Well, consumption lounges are legal. So they will. Once we get this online, you can't actually have restaurant with cannabis and food, infused food in it. Are you talking about who is representative in the ownership? Yeah, who owns these? Well, the majority, I think right now, there's a lot of ownership from different people. I think there's a lot of people right now that are represented by the Chaldean community. Uh, The black community has the most marijuana stores in Detroit out of anywhere in the country. Do we? Yes. But it's still not a very large number. It was 10 before. I think think one closed down, so it might be nine. It might be a little bit less than that. Because people are getting killed now because they can only sell medical marijuana. 
And it's like, well, I don't want to have to show you my car to buy marijuana when I could just go to River Rouge or I can go to Hazel Park and I go somewhere else and I can buy it right now. And it's legal. Mm-hmm. And that's the real issue that we have right now in terms of more black representation and not just keeping that, but also encouraging that. I think that's the problem that we have in terms of um, that's why you have some of these rules that they have now in terms of the five year process. So you can give Detroiters an opportunity to be able to participate in the market before you have the bigger guys come in. I think the problem with that is, one, I think it's disloyal to the people who've been here with you, who've been doing this for a long time. I think, secondly, it's going to hurt a lot of black Detroiters that work for these businesses that will be put out of a job. So I think there's an indirect impact on that market. I also think that it kind of takes away from the fact that Detroiters that want to get in on the ground level or who want to be in the business, but who don't have the capital and need to engage in partnerships to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have existing businesses, more than likely, they're not going to be able to do that. And it's not like a traditional business where you could go to a bank and get a loan because it's still illegal on the federal level. Okay. So you can't go get a loan. It's an all cash business. So you're going to need partnerships to be able to get started if you don't have the capital. Also, I think it's a tremendous opportunity for black folks to be able to practice cooperative economics. And what I mean by that is black people coming together and pooling their money to be able to do this. I think it would be best probably, you know, if the African town, you know, model or things of that nature where cannabis could be a part of that. I think that would be a real good thing that I would like to see overall. And I even think that we can do it kind of like they did it in, um, I forgot exactly where it was at, but I think it's Oakland where they had Oaksterdam. Where basically what that is, where they're teaching people about how to be in the cannabis business. You know what I'm saying? How to grow the plant, how to cure the plant, how to be a bud tender, you know, how to run a bit, have business incubators around that so they know how to run a business, how much money you're going to need up front, the capital that you're going to need. And we have programs like that with City Detroit now. I think it's just building upon that and giving people the opportunity to be able to build that as well. Because we have a lot of people who want to come in here and invest, but they can't because they can only sell medical right now. Yes, I have heard a lot of people wanting to come in, but they said that they were pretty much blocked out. And with you talking about capital and what is, you know, needed, I can see why a lot of Black people cannot get into the business. And I'm sure that was not by accident. I'm sure that um, those that are pretty much running it would like for it to, you know, remain that way. Yeah. Now, with it not being a federal um, product, I guess that that's what you call it. Yep. They do not have to pay any federal tax, correct? Or do they? Well, from my understanding, they're paying state tax. I don't think they're paying any federal tax now because it's not legal federally. Right. You know what I'm saying? So, no, they're not because it's not legal federally. They have laws to legalize it on the federal level, but it hasn't gone anywhere yet. And so we're missing out on billions of dollars that could go to the federal government. You know, we're having millions of dollars that's coming in from the state right now, as well as millions of dollars that could come in locally. So I think it's really unfortunate that the federal government is dragging their feet right now. But Well, this is what, what is. I think. Um, if I was a weed user, for whatever reason, why would I go to a cannabis store knowing the money is leaving the city and building up other communities? Why not just get on the phone and hit up my friend and have them bring me weed? Well, one, because potentially you don't know if you're where your friend got it or not. You don't know if it's illegal or underground. <laughs> so why take the risk? 
Secondly, the fact that if you go in these stores, you're going to get primo weed. Now, I'm not trying to knock your friend. I'm sure, you know, he's got the best, you know, hydroponics machine and <laughs> know how to grow it and all that stuff. But when you go to these weed stores, you're talking about guys that, you know, usually if you grow it out in the sunlight, you know, it takes so many times for the flowering cycle to hit. You know, it might take like a year or something like that. But the way they have these indoor grows, you can hit that flowering cycle in three to six months. And that's what you want because you want to have the best flowering so you can have the best uh, weed and uh, the best THC. Now you're going to have the best product. You know what I mean? You're also going to have the newest lines of products as well. Not just in terms of marijuana itself, but in terms of edibles if you want to eat it. Or in terms of um, dabbing, which is basically the THC extract from the plant that they did put on a dabbing rig to heat up at a nail. And then you inhale it, you know, you inhale the actual vapor. Now, the thing about that is that's like 90 something percent THC. So, I mean, you're talking about, you know, I mean, it depends on what you want to do. You know, do you want to have a body high where, you know, you watch cartoons and, you know, smoke? Or do you want to be, you know, fighting Thanos in Infinity War? You know, it, that's the level of THC that you have it or what you're dealing with. So I think that's why you would go to the store because it's primo. It's the best you're going to get. You don't have to worry about, you know, the marijuana being bad or being sour or being unhealthy. And also, quite frankly, you don't have to worry about looking over your shoulder, you know, whether or not, you know, it's a sting or something like that. You know, I, I don't know if they do that anymore for mm-hmm. marijuana, but, you know, that is prevalent out there. I really think it needs to be legalized on the federal level, though. Mm-hmm. That's what I think to really just make sure we have a clear playing field. And like you said, they can pay federal taxes. Yeah. So that a person off the street, can say, you know, I think I need some weed because I've been sick. And they don't have a card. Mm -hmm. They can walk into one of these stores and they can just go ahead and buy it. Mm -hmm. Well, why is it that I don't see a whole lot of cars out there with people buying it? Well, it it depends on where you're at. If you're in Detroit, it's because it's medical. So you got to have a card. So that's why I don't see, I don't see a lot. Now, if you go like to River Rouge, or if you go to somewhere where it's legal, you're going to see cars like that. You know what I'm saying? Now, it depends on where it is. Marijuana stores are different than liquor stores. So you might see like a whole bunch of cars, but they might be in the back. Like there used to be a marijuana store over here off of um, Jefferson. We're just now kind of regulating medical marijuana too. Because mm-hmm. before we authorized it, but there was no real state regulations. So at one point in time, we had in Detroit, we had like 300 dispensaries. Yeah, they shrunk that down to like 75, 76. That's why, and I forgot to say this too, that's why they want to expand the number of licensing that people can get so that you can have an opportunity for people to be able to participate in the business because you had so many people that shut out. Now, some of these folks was, you know, selling dirty. You know okay. what I'm saying? They was out there, you know, they weren't asking people for medical cards. They was out there, you know, it was a trap and they was out there selling marijuana and they got shut down. But there were some businesses that were doing right too. A lot more, I believe, they were doing right. That just got shut down for whatever reason. I just think if you're doing the right thing and you're doing it legally in the right way, and these marijuana businesses are active in the community. You know, they have a good neighbors program that we have uh, is part of the ordinance in the city of Detroit, where you actually have to be able to give back to the community. You have to be involved in the community. And a lot of these marijuana businesses are involved in the community. I just came back from one not too long ago that uh, dedicated a park recently. For the citizens. So you have people who are active in the community. And it's a little bit different than marijuana stores. I mean, I know where I, where I live at, 
there are two liquor stores. There's one um, off Kirchwell, and there's another one on either side of me. And any time of day, you can see a guy, you know, get lit or blew out, and he's sitting in front of the liquor store mm-hmm. or laid out on the street in the liquor store. There used to be a time in, in one of the liquor stores in the parking lot where they actually had a couch there. And guys would sit on the couch, and they would debate the issues or whatever <laughs> with each other, you know, on the couch. So it's a different environment. I know it's kind of long-winded way to answer your question, but yeah, I think that's why you don't see it because we're not selling recreational yet. Okay. Well, with it being legalized, yeah. when are we going to get the boys and girls out of the prison? They're not boys and girls now. But when are we going to get them out? That's a good question. I think some of this is going to have to come on the federal level. And so they got to legalize that and do that. I think on the state level, that's why I think Governor uh, Whitmer has done a good job in terms of uh, expunging people's records. And moving people out there as soon as possible, it's going to be a long-term process. It's going to be a case-by-case basis. But I definitely think that we should be expunging everybody that's in there for low-level drug offenses and get them up out of there. Definitely. That's a problem. And, you know, they're going to differentiate between possession and intent to distribute. But a lot of people got hit with intent to distribute. To me, it's like this is something that happens every day You know, at the Piggly Wiggly when it comes to, you know, alcohol distribution. And we're not going to even have the conversation about opioids and what they've done in the community. And that's legal. And I think the response yes. with opioids, when it was happening to our Caucasian brothers and sisters, it was a crisis. And when it was happening to our black and brown brothers and sisters, it was a crime. I just think that's fundamentally wrong. And so we need some sort of balance and equity in that. So hopefully the state will move forward on that and the federal government will as well. And I'll do anything from my perch to be able to do that. To help them. Now, I was uh, told that people were thinking of moving it to the downtown area. Thank you for that question. That's something I came up with because people were talking about, I don't want it in my neighborhood. You know, we are, I think this stems from um, District 3 of our city council districts, where basically there's just too many, they, they felt overwhelmed with the amount of marijuana stores in their community. And I was like, okay, how about we move it downtown? Now, this is an interesting dynamic because of remote work after the coronavirus, I think we're looking at conservatively maybe a 50% vacancy rate right now. Mm -hmm. So if you were ever going to look at moving marijuana stores, or at least if you're going to add marijuana stores, put a lot of them downtown, Mm -hmm. now would be the time. Now, you could put some actually storefronts, Mm -hmm. which I think is a good thing. But I'll talk about you could also do things kind of like the Russell Bazaar setup. So we're at Russell Bazaar. It's an industrial building. You have a whole lot of marijuana stores on different floors. Mm-hmm. So basically what, I, what they call going vertical, that would be my plan. Would be actually to put marijuana stores, you know, on certain floors of some buildings that are empty currently. So you can have a lot of marijuana stores in a building. And it's not necessarily on the street or smelling in your neighborhood or things of that nature. And I think it would be good for business. Because you got a lot of business activities going downtown. And these are businesses. They should be downtown. It'd also be good for a lot of vacancies that we have in terms of empty storefronts that are available. And I also think it'd be good for downtown in terms of businesses as well and economic development and people coming down there. And so I think that is one solution. I also think working with the Detroit Building Authority to be able to find other industrial sites that we could put these marijuana stores in and go vertical in these buildings as well. They kind of take it away from being off the street, per se, but actually have a lot of stores that will be in business. And then the people could have restaurants inside of the 
and they could have just like the hookah lounge. Yeah. They could have people sitting back there smoking, doing their thing. I should be able to go to the Lions game, watch the fight in MGM Grand, and go right over there to a little marijuana store, eat me an edible, you know, or, or you know, or buy me the sour diesel or whatever it is you like to engage in. You know, I'm not encouraging people. I'm not condoning people. I'm not condemning people either. But I'm just saying that's something that you want to do. You should be able to do that just like you go drink alcohol, just like you go have a glass of wine after work. Mm-hmm. Have they thought about moving the product the way that the Avon lady works? I don't know. I think it had to be legal federally. Oh, federally. Before, yeah, before you start <laughs> doing it like that. You know what I'm saying? I'm sure people will try. I'm sure you probably go have some infused marijuana makeup at some point in time anyway. So I wouldn't be surprised you see somebody, you know, instead of driving a Mary Kay car, you know, they drive And they selling weed. The cannabis car. <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't be surprised sooner or later, you know. Okay. Let me ask you this. Will we get our due as black folks in this business in this city? I think so. I think if we do it right, we do it the right way. You know, we make sure we have enough licenses where we can have enough opportunities for people at the table. Our social equity pieces are strong. I'm not saying everybody's going to be successful. It's not what I'm saying. But if we do enough to provide opportunity, I think we can have a real good real good chance for black folks to be at the table. I think we practice cooperative economics. We pool our resources together. I think we can do it that way. I think having a lot of black folks being able to participate with partnerships in these businesses. I think that's a real good way to do that. I think that would be the best way for us to have that. Now, are we going to have the same footing as those who have capital that been in this business starting out? No, I don't think so. You're not going to be able to have the same money starting out without baby bonds and reparations on the federal level to close the racial wealth gap, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. It's just not going to happen. But I definitely think that we will have an opportunity to participate more here than we do in other places around the country. And here is important because how we treat black folks in the blackest city in America is going to reverberate throughout the country. And if we're not intentional, not purposeful, and we don't make sure that we do everything we can within our power and move heaven on earth to make sure that we have black representation, and representation that looks like the majority of people in this city, I think it'll be a shame. And I also think it will send a signal we don't want to send to the rest of the world. If we can't take care of all, we can't expect anybody else to. That's right. Which brings the point of, um, for the first time in many years, that a black person will, will not be in the House of Representatives. Can I say something about that real quick? Look, this is an example. Of, and, let, and let me say this. The leaders that we have now in office, you know, uh, will go down. I'm talking about, you know, um, that we have who are part of this will go down as some of the best ever to do it. But the biggest room in the world is a room for improvement. I'm not saying anybody's guilty, but as elected officials, we all have a responsibility and we need to take advantage of it. And I think that this is what happens when you have people who are divided, when you have everybody who wants to be the top chef and nobody wants to be the cook. Everybody wants to be the general and nobody wants to be the soldiers. And when my father, the Honorable Coleman Young Sr. was around, he would tell people, like, look, you're not running. You're going to stay out. You're not going to run. You're not going to run. He going to run. And that's the way it's going to be. 
And we need to get back to that sort of cooperative thinking where we have to sacrifice for the greater good. Now, before we didn't have to do that, because before we had districts that were drawn up in a way and a population that was set up in a way where you could have multiple people running against each other and still have black representation. Mm-hmm. We don't have that now. No, we don't. That's what happens. You lose 25% of your population for 2000, 2010, and then 10% of your population for 2010, 2020. And that's what happens. And, and it's also redistricting part of it. I would have never voted for that redistricting commission if I knew they were going to do what they did. I would have never thought in a million years that when I went through the redistricting process, that our process would be more fair towards black folks than an independent redistricting commission. Because when I was a state senator, it was you can draw the lines however you want to draw them. Just don't go into Oakland County or Macomb County. Just don't go outside of Wayne County. Mm -hmm. Okay? And they had to be 50%. And I have to give it out to Mike Vatter, the guy that really helped us do this. I really have a new appreciation for him in terms of how we drew this up will be 51% representation. So if black folks wanted to come together and vote for a black person, they could. You know what I'm saying? That wasn't the case in some of these districts. Some of these areas are like 40%, 41%. So we are having for the first time, not just in Congress, but also we don't have any black male representation in the state Senate. And it's funny because when I was serving for 2000, so long ago, for 2000 to 2014, all of our leadership was black. You know what I'm saying? We had Tupac Hunter. We had Morris Hood, third, but he rest in peace. Uh, we had Virgil Smith. Uh, and we had myself. You know what I'm saying? And so we had everybody that was there. And we had Bird Johnson. And it seems that all that is gone because one of redistricting, but also because we refuse to collectively organize and come together and sacrifice for the greater good. And now we have to live with the consequences. I'm not taking away from Sharita Tadar. I'm not taking away from Rashida Tlaib. And partially, I feel responsible for this in a way because I ran for Congress against Rashida Tlaib. I'm not taking away from the Congresswoman. But had I had known what was going to happen, I would have dropped out mm-hmm. and let Brenda Jones, who was also in that race, have that. And, you know, at first you can't see beyond, you know, your own ambitions and your own thoughts or whatever, but we have got to start sacrificing now for the greater good. Yes. And we've got to get the message out. Yeah. We have to use our churches more. And due to COVID, that our churches didn't have the power that they would normally have. Right. So we have to use our barbershops, a place that we know gets out the message. And all these other organizations that we have and clubs We've got to get the message out because we messing up. Yeah. And we can't blame other folk. It's that we are messing up. I think it comes down to leadership and being intentional. I also think that, and this is really something that I think we need to work on more, was, like I said earlier, is collectively organizing and coming together behind this being a priority. And I also think that a lot of folks, and I'm not knocking again Sheree Tanner or Rashida Tlaib, it's not that they, you can't represent black people if you're not black. That's not true. You can. But I think it's the issue of priorities. And it's like right now, in this time, post-George Floyd, mm-hmm. I think that the issue of reparations 
is on the table. And that's not something that you can all lives matter. That's not something that you can give. You can't give slavery reparations to people who are not descendants of slaves. Right. You can't give slavery reparations to people who didn't experience Jim Crow. You don't want a situation where you give a reparation for slavery to um, Trayvon Martin's family and George Zimmerman. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? You don't want a situation where you give a slavery reparations to George Floyd's family and to J. Alexander Kung and Tao Thao, the men who were, you know, who were resp- either running interference or who were holding George Floyd down while he's being choked to death. Right. I'm not saying that you can't reach out and fight against anti-Asian hate. I'm not saying that you can't be an advocate for Palestine. You know, you can. You can do all that. But I'm saying that for black people, your priorities have to be intentional. And they had to be exclusive for black folks because black people, especially descendants of slaves in America, black people are not immigrants. They're imports. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's a different, and, and, and which the foundation of this country was built. You know, Wall Street, 40 cents of every dollar from the slave trade went to New York businessmen. Everything that we have here, the Industrial Revolution was financed from the cotton, 88% of cotton that went to Liverpool to finance the Industrial Revolution came from the American slave trade, 1830. So everything that we had, like everything in this room went through the industrial process. So everything that we have here was based on the blood, sweat, tears, and toil and lives of our ancestors. Absolutely. That needs to be financially compensated and it needs to be handled in a way, if you're a black person, you're sensitive to that. You're attuned to that. I'm not saying you're not, if you're not black, I'm saying you got to go out of your way to get in line with that and be intentional with that. And so if you don't have somebody that doesn't make that connection, you could kind of miss that. And if you want to all lives matter or try to bring everybody up the same thing, it really kind of hurts black folks because it reinforces them at the bottom or the bottom of the racial caste system, which I think is a problem. I'm not saying that they can't overcome it. I'm not saying they don't support HR 40. I personally don't think we need a study. I think we need to cut the check. But I think that those are some of the things that you're kind of going to have to be in a wait and see mode about. Where if you were somebody who was black, who kind of understood the history, especially between the fact that, you know, you're talking about people who held the seats of Charles Diggs, who founded the Black Caucus, and uh, John Conyers, who introduced reparations since the Reagan administration. That's kind of what we're replacing now. Yes. Okay, now, what is your vision for the city? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, my vision for the city, one, what I would like to do is I would like to make sure that we invest more in the trades. We invest more in allowing our kids. The, the number one leading thing that we have for jobs in this city is blue collar jobs right now. And I think that we need to make sure we partner up with DP, not take over, but partner up with Detroit Public Schools to be able to invest more in blue collar jobs. We want to make sure that we invest more in STEM and science, technology, engineering, and math. If our kids want to go to college, we need to be able to do that. And I think that the um, student loan forgiveness that uh, President Biden did was a good thing. I didn't think it was enough, but I thought it was a good thing. He should be applauded for that. But uh, I definitely think that we need to invest more in the trades, in the skill trades. Uh, I think that's something I would like to see more. Um, I would also like to see if you're a police officer, that one, that we have residency. 
So police officers are actually living in the city. We again? used to have that. We did. We did. And then they got rid of it in 1999. One. And secondly, that you actually have to spend some time in Detroit as a police officer before you can go leave to the suburbs. Because right now you got a lot of police officers. They go, they get their training. And because you get experience in Detroit, you don't get anywhere else. They go leave to the suburbs. We're losing officers right now. And so I think that you should have to stay here for at least five years before you go off to the suburbs or something of that nature. That's what I would like to see for the future of Detroit. I would also like to see us invest more in uh, automated vehicles, partnering with four. They have the Intellectual Cathedral over in Southwest Detroit. I'm working on passing the Transportation Innovation Zone that's going to work more on automated vehicles, work more on drones. And what I mean by drone technology is actually being able to pick up food and deliver it to most needed areas. So people who don't have cars, because like 29, 27% of people in Detroit don't have car vehicles right now. So you can actually deliver that so you have to go on the bus. But I actually have better transportation as well in terms of uh, mobility as a service. So when you talk about mobility as a service, you talk about transportation outside of just having a car. So, you know, you can have your Uber, your Lyft. Uh, you can also have your scooters. You can have your Boaz bikes. You can have your zip cars. Uh, I think that's something that we're going to expand upon. So you can have multiple modes of transportation that you can use in order to be able to get to where you need to be, as well as making sure that we have mass transit, probably going to be rapid bus transit, but making sure that we fund that so we have that going to the suburbs and back. I think that's a good thing. I also think I like to have, we need to invest more in affordable housing. And that's something that's critical right yes, now. Yes, it is. It's critical that people have more affordable housing and we have more homeless shelters as well for people who are on hard times so they can have a place to stay. I think that's something that's important, as well as building emergency housing uh, for our homeless and our most value, our most uh, vulnerable to be able to have a place to stay. I think that's something that's very important that I would like to see. Also, what i like to see is more apprenticeships, not just in the trades, but also in tech, so that our kids can be able to learn the skills you know, kind of like Chicago, they had with IBM, where you could go out of Chicago public schools and go directly to IBM. I think that's something that we would have to learn to do more about. I also think that the future of Detroit as well is going to be for us to really do more about the issue of gun violence. I like the laws that we passed on the federal level. You know, I think we're going to have to have some more laws that are passed, particularly with these weapons of war. And now that you can print guns on the Internet. You know, and they're basically ghost guns. So when they print the gun on here, they don't have a serial number. So you can't trace it back to where it came from. That's really what I see the future of Detroit being is a safer city. I see the future of Detroit being a more educated opportunity city. I also see uh, the city of Detroit being able to regain its population again. Yes. Populated city again, but also doing a better job making sure that we do not just for those that want to come in, but also that we do more about those who stayed. Yes. Those that stay through some hard times. It hurts my heart to see a lot of black people that are forced out of their houses for yeah. one reason or another. A person comes in from out of the state. They fix those houses and they don't come here to stay. This gentrification over on the east side is a problem for me. Yeah. Uh, I hate to see how they're changing the culture of this city. Mm -hmm. I love dogs, 
but their dog owners, I do not. <laughs> and I see people, the gentrifiers, coming into our neighborhoods because we got the doggy parks. Now, they don't plan on staying, and within a year, they will, you know, move out. And then another group. And I always say, you know, come, but realize we have our own culture here. Yeah. And the fact that a lot of people, because they don't know a lot about real estate, they get a person that comes and offers them $150,000 for their home, and they think, oh, this is a whole lot of money. But that family has got to split that money up, maybe between grandmother and mom and then, you know, children. And so now where can you live? Outside of the city. And with these inflationary times, I mean, oh. you know, costs going up. I mean, you know, it's starting to trend in the right direction in terms of gas prices. You know what I mean? But food is starting to go up again. And so when you have, you know, costs for basic necessities that are skyrocketing, it's very important that we do all we can and we be intentional about what we can do in order to actually stop and prevent gentrification in terms of building more affordable housing. Yeah. Uh, and building it, you know, at the proper area of median income. So I think the average income of the Detroit Quarters in a sense is like $32,000, a little bit more. And so I think that building it at, you know, the 50% AMI or 30% AMI, I think was really, you know, either, either thir- or a little over $30,000 or a little over uh, $20,000, I think, or 18, excuse me. I think it's something that's very important. Yeah, And I think these are things that we're going to have to do. I'm not saying that we can't have nice places to live. I'm not saying we can't have apartments because most people, because the city of Detroit is a city of renters right now, quite frankly, because you had the foreclosure crisis where so many right. lost their properties. And I was part of a recent um, program with the land bank where we were actually were giving people back their deeds for houses that they lost so they could be able to live in these houses again. So I think that's a good first step. But I think we're going to have to have a lot more in terms of doing that. I also think we're going to have to do a lot more about property tax reform, too. Yes. And so I think that's why I personally believe that uh, we need to have land value taxation. So basically, you tax the land at a higher rate than you would the property and its improvements. So you can actually lower the tax rate and bring more money in. I think you can increase about 17% that you can bring in. So I think these, if you do it to a five to one, so you tax the land at five times, you tax the property. I think that way we can actually reduce property. Because we have the fourth highest property tax rate residentially in the country. And the highest property tax rate uh, for commercial property over a billion dollars in the country. So I think these are reforms that we have. There's like 69 mills. So one out of every $1,000 of money that you make that's taxed for residential. And it's about like 87 for commercial. So that's your business. So I think there's reform opportunities that we can have for that, especially when we're talking about paying back the people who were overassessed by $600 million, right. who lost their properties because of that as well. So we're going to have a conversation about that in the 15th of September, Very so I look good. forward to it. Well, I want to thank you for coming on Detroit Joe podcast, first politician to come. Hey. Yeah, and that makes me happy. I see now that when I want some information, I have to go to the council. Absolutely. Because the city hall, they want no parts of me. <laughs> I, 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 I can see why. Look, I'm just thankful to be here. I can see I survived. <laughs> you be scaring people, Detroit, Joe. I want to say, you know, thank you. 
And now for my two cents. As you see, I know very little about the cannabis business. But if I had any say, I would get the weed boys and girls out of lockup and train them to sell the product legally. They would be like Tish on Shy, you know, the Showtime miniseries. But seriously, there is no reason for there not to be blacks growing and selling most of this product since it is our city and we appear to use a large quantity of it. Well, that's just my two cents. Whatever you do, walk in love and peace.